Good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. Here we are in Psalm chapter 2. Uh, I actually shouldn't call it Psalm chapter 2. I should just say Psalm 2. Uh, the Psalms technically are just a collection of songs. They're not chapters like, uh, say, the other books of the Bible. Uh, so we're going to look at Psalm 2 today. Two today. Uh, let me pray and we'll jump into it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your precious word. Please, by your spirit, Move in us that we would treasure it more than silver or gold. Please give us a taste for it that it would be sweeter to our mouths than honey. Uh, please give us illumination by your Holy Spirit now that we might understand the meaning and the intent of uh, Psalm 2 and help us to uh, embrace it with faith. Uh, help us to see the way in which it appoints us to Jesus and to his coming kingdom. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, last week, like I said, we introduced the book of Psalms, and it is really rather interesting the way in which Psalms 1 and 2 seem to function as the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Psalm 1, like we talked about last week, is all about the Word of God, treasuring the Word of God, delighting in the Word of God, meditating on it, and if you're willing to do that, you'll have a fruitful, abundant life. Psalm 2, as I'm going to claim today, is all about the Messiah. Um, and, and you put those two themes together, and that makes sense. I mean, these are really sort of the two things you need to nail down for a proper Christian life, a view of the Bible and a view of the Messiah. And both of these kind of come together in Psalm 1 and 2 that set a uh, theme for the entire book, the Word of God and the Messiah. Now, it is interesting, if we go back in time a little bit, like I said last week, we think most of the psalms were written by King David. King David lived around 1000 BC. Other psalms were written by a variety of folks, uh, the sons of Asaph, uh, Ethan, Moses, a whole bunch of different characters, uh, You know, some older than David, some later than David. But we think that the, that the Psalter, the entire book of psalms, was put together around the time of Ezra, kind of compiled. You know, They gathered up all these scattered hymns and whatnot, and they put it together about the year, uh, say, 700, 600 BC, probably during the time of Ezra. And what that means is that there is an interesting flow in the entire book of Psalms. They're, they're not entirely independent from one another. You can see connections here and there. Uh, what that means is that when you read the Psalms, maybe read the Psalm before it and the Psalm after it to see connections. There are often connections there, phrases that are the same, words that are the same. It's really quite fascinating. And, and what that is, that's indicating the way in which this, psal this book of Psalms was put together as a whole uh, with a flow. Now, obviously, you can interpret them in individually, independently from the context, um, and yet, at the same time, it is helpful to kind of see the flow. And again, for more on that, check out that sermon I mentioned last week. I preached it probably eight, ten years ago on why God gave us the Psalms. And I went into brief, brief detail on how the entire flow of the book functions. And it really is fascinating. You've almost got the entire flow of the plan of God in the Psalms. Now, it's real subtle. You know, if you're not aware of this flow, you're not going to notice it. But when, once you see it, you're like, wow, this really does seem to reflect the entire eternal plan of God in the Psalms and how they're organized and put together. But anyway, having said that, Psalm 2, what do we know about it? Well, the psalm itself doesn't tell us who wrote it. As you can see, it doesn't have a title. But when you go to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, it says that King David wrote it. So this is another one of those psalms that even though uh, it doesn't say King David wrote it, he did, in fact, write it, which tells us that he probably wrote more psalms than just the 75 or so that are ascribed to him. Remember, again, last week, I said about 75 of the psalms say by King David or for King David or something like that. Um, there are other ones without title. Uh, the New Testament tells us that Psalm 2, at least, was written by David, which suggests that maybe there are other ones written by David as well. There's a very old tradition going back, uh, even before like pre-Christian times, to the ancient Jews that claimed that King David wrote Psalm 119, even though Psalm 119 does not have a title indicating who its author is. Uh, so I'm going to assume Psalm 
uh, seven, or pardon me, two here, is about King David. Uh, King David lived in about 1000 BC, and yet he's prophesying and describing the rule and reign of the Messiah. Now let's read it and then make a few comments on it. Psalm chapter 2. Not Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, what can we say about this psalm? A couple of things. First, I want you to take a look at verse 2. These nations, they're raging against whom? They're raging against the anointed. You see that? Now, in the Old Testament, that's the word Messiah. If we were to translate that in Hebrew, not, not translate it, but actually look at it in Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. Now, I need to back up here a little bit. What is Messiah? What is this all about? Now, the idea of the Messiah simply means the anointed one. That's all the word means. Uh, it's used in a verb form, to Messiah somebody, means to anoint them. And if you know the Old Testament, priests were anointed, kings were anointed, and again, the verb is just to Messiah them. Now, all of those anointings were pointing to a great anointing, a great uh, anointed one, the Messiah. Uh, so was King David anointed? Of course. But he's sort of like a mini preview of the great Messiah who is to come, the one promised in, say, Genesis 3.15, who will crush the serpent's head and roll back the curse, the ultimate seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, uh, the prophet greater than Moses, so on. That's the great Messiah that the entire Old Testament is pointing us toward. And obviously, as we read the Bible, that's Jesus. Uh, that's not a Messiah that's yet to come, you know, like the Jews are looking for, but we think that this is Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, roughly 4, uh, 4 to 6 B.C., so this psalm, even though it's written by King David around 1000 BC, is describing uh, Jesus, the Messiah, who's to be born in around, again, 4 or 6 BC. Now, what is going on here with this Messiah? Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Uh, it's kind of ironic that on the morning that I'm uh, reading this, we're all concerned about Russia and Ukraine and what's going on there. Uh, and if you follow the news, you know that there, there's a lot of international instability uh, going on right now. Russia and Ukraine, but then there's China and Taiwan. Uh, North Korea's testing out missiles. Uh, Iran's kind of always angry at somebody. So there is a lot of nations raging, uh, they're fighting, they're warring, they're invading one another, uh, and that describes the scene that King David saw in the light of the Messiah. And look at verse 2, what they're doing. They set themselves together, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now pause there. Um, when, we, when we think about nations raging and kingdoms rising and falling, we don't think first and foremost of them raging against God and raging against King Jesus. Uh, but that's the way in which we need to look at it. You know, all that's going on with Russia and Ukraine, all that's going on with China, uh, what that is, that's raging against God and raging against his Messiah. Now, how in the world uh, is, is that the case? Well, you think about it, 
so many of these wars are not righteous wars. They're, they're uh, invasions because I want more land, I want more uh, money, I want more resources, that sort of thing. And if I'm willing to treat another people group uh, in an unjust way, uh, oppress them, uh, pillage them to get stuff that I want, that really is, at the end of the day, raging against the Lord. You know, the, the Lord is the one who has given us these eternal principles of right and wrong, justice, love your neighbor. But if we're willing to throw all of that aside uh, to oppress our neighbor and to take advantage of his kingdom, uh, that really is raging against the, the Lord. How is it then raging against the Messiah? Well, here's the reason why. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is declared to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one now with all authority in heaven and on earth. He owns this entire planet. Uh, you know, from the point of the fall up until Jesus' resurrection, the devil was the god of this age. And all of the nations sort of served him unwittingly. But now through Jesus' death and resurrection, now the entire earth belongs to him. And therefore to... Uh, rebel against him, to refuse his authority, uh, and to especially refuse the principles of justice that the Lord has just woven into this world, it is raging not only against God, the Lord, but also against Jesus, the Messiah, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's really the way in which you ought to interpret the evening news. Uh, not just nations going to war, not just nations invading one another. Of course, that's happening. But in addition to that, they're in rebellion against God. They're in rebellion against King Jesus. What they ought to do is repent of their sins, uh, embrace Jesus in mass, and, 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 and worship him. Uh, but that's the last thing that they're willing to do. Look uh, at what they're saying, verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now again, they're probably not saying this verbatim, but that really is the heart of what they're doing. When a stronger nation is willing to oppress a weaker nation just because they want their natural resources, what is that other than uh, throwing off the Lord's authority, rejecting his counsels, rejecting his principles of justice. So that's the sort of scene that sets the context here. You got all these nations raging, peoples plotting in vain. At the end of the day, they're rebelling against the Lord and against his Messiah. But look at how God reacts to this human rebellion. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Uh, now, this is so interesting because it's, again, it's not how we react. You know, when, when you and I read the news or see the news and we see Russia invading Ukraine, it kind of freaks us out. Uh, you know, especially if you're, say, a man of my age and you happen to be in the Navy Reserve and you know what would happen if we went to World War III, uh, you know what I'm talking about. That does, you know, make you a little bit anxious. And yet God, on the other hand, he, he's not made anxious by wars and rumors of war. He's not uh, up in heaven wringing his hands thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen? He, he's laughing. He, he's guffawing. Uh, really, this is the kind of laughter similar to when, you know, when, when I was a really little kid, occasionally I'd play basketball with significantly older kids. You know, let's say I'm 10 and I'm playing basketball with an 18-year-old. Uh, this 18-year-old is just going to like smirk and laugh at me when I'm shooting hoops and totally missing. Uh, that's what it is when these nations rebel against God, even to a far, far greater degree. Uh, God is laughing. How could you be so foolish? How could you be so moronic to think that you can rebel against me and against my messiah he is the true king of kings and lord of lords one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is lord therefore for you to rebel against me it's really kind of like a, a a kindergartner uh trying to defeat an nfl player on the football field it's just it's irrational uh, but that's exactly what it is verse five then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Now, this is where the psalm kind of expands, almost like an accordion, uh, because what the Old Testament 
didn't see was the two comings of Jesus. You've probably heard about this before. The Old Testament seems to kind of bundle together Jesus' first coming and his second coming together as one. Uh, the Old Testament looks forward certainly to a Messiah coming, the Messiah suffering, dying, and rising again, but then also Messiah's future kingdom, where every knee bows uh, to him and embraces him as Lord. The Old Testament kind of bundles that all together. And this psalm does that. What the Old Testament doesn't seem to see is this church age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Uh, during this time, Jesus has come, and again, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but between now and his second coming, there's this gracious window of opportunity. Uh, repent, come to me now while there's opportunity. Uh, I'm not going to bring judgment day in yet. There's this gracious, and for us now, it's been over 2,000 years, uh, this gracious window of opportunity where the nations can embrace Jesus as opposed to being destroyed. But we do know that when he comes a second time, he will come in his wrath to judge the living and the dead. Um, so anyway, picking back, back up in verse 5, he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Uh, what's God's answer to the rebellion of this world, to the nations raging, to political instability? Uh, don't worry, Jesus is on his throne. Uh, Jesus is the true king of kings and lord of lords. And a day is coming very soon when he'll set everything aright. Uh, he'll judge the living and the dead. He'll punish the unjust. He'll welcome the uh, righteous into his kingdom. And, and then the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's the answer to the rebellion uh, that we see going on uh, in, in our world all the time. And as Christians, that's what I, I would encourage you to comfort yourself with. You know, I'm as uh, concerned about this whole Ukraine affair as anybody is, uh, maybe even slightly more so, but what ought I use to comfort myself in this? Uh, not putting hope in horses and chariots, not putting hope in earthly princes and kings, uh, but putting my hope in Jesus and the fact that a day is coming very soon when he'll set everything aright. Uh, he'll judge the living and the dead, and he'll, again, bring his kingdom in its fullness here to earth. That ought to be our ultimate hope when we see the nations raging, not human leaders. Now, look at verse 7, if you would. I can see I'm quickly running out of time. Uh, does this sound familiar to anything that you see in the New Testament? I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Does that sound at all like anything in the New Testament? Uh, nearly everybody recognizes that this language echoes Jesus' baptism. You'll remember what happens at Jesus' baptism. Jesus comes to John, John initially hesitates, he says, I'm, you, know, you should baptize me, I shouldn't baptize you, but Jesus says, no, we've got to do this to fulfill all the righteousness. He dunks Jesus on the way up, the spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and then a voice says, you are my beloved son. You remember that? This verse verse is almost certainly describing that experience in Jesus' life, giving us further evidence that this psalm is talking about that ultimate anointed one, King Jesus. Now look at verse 8. I find this fascinating. This is the Father speaking to Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, in the way in which I read this particular passage, that verse is being fulfilled in sort of a spiritual manner now, but it will be fulfilled in sort of a royal manner when Jesus comes again. Uh, right now, the church is commanded to go into all the world and to make disciples. And it is interesting, the phraseology there, the ends of the earth, the New Testament picks that up when it says, go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, uh, Acts 1.8. Uh, so it does seem like this is kind of alluding to that. So the 
church in its mission to make disciples of all the world is partially fulfilling this. Uh, and, and that really is our mission to go into all the world and proclaim there is a new king in town. How do we know he's the new king? God raised him from the dead. If you'll embrace him now with repentance and faith, you won't be destroyed on judgment day. Uh, come all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to King Jesus. That's the message that we proclaim now to all the nations. And as those from all the nations embrace Jesus, Jesus is in part receiving the reward of his suffering, the inheritance that he purchased uh, on, on the cross. Having said that, like I said, there's a future day coming when this will happen in a, like a geopolitical way. Uh, after Jesus comes again and after he judges the living and the dead, then all the nations will literally worship him. He will rule on this planet and, and the nations will stream to him in worship. Uh, so again, it's being fulfilled in a spiritual way now, but in a very literal way after Jesus comes again. And, and that's, I think, what verse 9 is talking about. This is primarily, verse 9 is talking about not now. Uh, right now we don't see Jesus crushing the nations with a rod of iron, but we will at his coming. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's interesting that ruling with a rod of iron is something Jesus uh, is described as doing in the book of Revelation, if you were to check that. So verses 1 through 9 kind of put together this plan of God and how God is looking at uh, the rebellion of this world. The nations are raging. Uh, they're raging against the Lord and against his Messiah. God is amused at the folly of their rebellion. The answer to that folly is the Messiah, King Jesus, who will one day be worshipped by folks from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, uh, partially in this church age, but fully at his coming. And what's the counsel? Uh, verse 10 through 12 gives us the application. How then should we live in light of this? Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Uh, this is talking to Vladimir Putin, uh, Joe Biden, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, what's the wise counsel? Uh, here's what it is. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, basically, kings, rulers, presidents, prime ministers, we know the end of the story. Uh, we know how history is going to wrap up. Jesus will be the unchallenged, uncontested, invincible king of kings and lord of lords. Therefore, the only wise thing now is to repent. Repent, embrace him with saving faith. Take refuge in him and be forgiven, be reconciled to this king Messiah before it's too late. A day is coming when he will pour out his wrath on this world. A day is coming when the entire uh, planet will be consumed in his wrath and he'll create a new heavens and a new earth. Since that day is certainly coming, uh, repent. Come to him now before it's too late. I hope you see the way in which this psalm really is a wonderful presentation of the gospel. You know, the very same gospel that I preach here at Trinity every week, uh, this is that gospel just in sort of more Old Testament psalmish categories. Look at some of the ways in which verses 10 through 12 describe saving faith. Uh, just as a real quick aside, sometimes people get the idea that the Old Testament does not teach salvation by faith alone. Uh, I even thought this at times growing up, that the Old Testament taught, obey the Mosaic law, New Testament teaches salvation by works. Uh, realize that's a serious, serious misunderstanding of the Bible. The entire Bible teaches salvation by faith alone. Uh, it's just the, the Old Testament often uses different terms to describe this experience of what it means to believe on Jesus. And what are these terms that the Old Testament uses to believe on Jesus? Look at verse 12, kiss the son. 
Now that's the kiss of homage. The ki- you know, you've probably seen these uh, maybe movies where the, the mafia don holds out his ring and has the guy kiss his ring sort of as a pledge of allegiance or something like that. That's the idea here. Uh, and again, that's what we're doing when we embrace Jesus. We're embracing his loving leadership. We're recognizing that he is the king and we are his subjects. Kiss the son, and then it says at the bottom of verse 12, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Taking refuge in him is really just an Old Testament synonym for salvation by faith. What does it mean to be saved by faith? It means I've taken refuge in the Lord. I've turned to him, fled to him, uh, gone to him for protection, for salvation. Uh, That's what it is in Old Testament categories. But hopefully you can see the way in which it really is salvation by faith alone in the Messiah, just different terms. Now, how could we pray this passage back to God? Uh, Several suggestions come to my mind. First, let's pray for one another that God gives us this perspective on the rebellion that's going on on our planet. Um, You know, it's so easy to get frightened by the evening news, get anxious by thoughts of, uh, you know, going to war. Um, And again, I I don't want to minimize the significance of that. I don't want to have a war, and I pray against war uh, often. But let us also realize that over and above all of this is the Lord and his Messiah. And this isn't concerning God. This isn't making him worry. Uh, He's still on his throne, and he's still working all things after the counsel of his own will. So let's pray for faith to believe that, even when the world seems to be falling apart. Let's also, like uh, verse 8 says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Uh, We have a role in that. Uh, If we're believers, we have this glorious mission, this appropriate mission of going into all the world, to every people group, and calling out followers of Jesus. So Lord, give me opportunities to do that today in this culture, Uh, raise up missionaries to do that in other cultures, Uh, work through churches, work through preachers, so that more and more of the nations come to embrace King Jesus. But also, if we individually haven't put our faith in Jesus ourselves, uh, apply verse 12 to yourself. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you when you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, Really ask yourself, have you kissed the son with that uh, humble homage, bowed the knee to him? Uh, Are you looking to him for your refuge, for your protection, uh, for the only hope for your eternal soul? Has that taken place in your life? If not, today's the day. Uh, Today's the day to turn and embrace the Lord Jesus. This psalm doesn't only apply to kings and rulers, though certainly it does apply to them. It applies to every individual. And if you've not yet turned from your sins and embraced the Lord Jesus, today is the day. Uh, Because really none of us know when that day of wrath is coming. Uh, None of us know when Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Could be today, uh, could be 500 years from now. We don't really know, but it's only wise to be prepared for that day. So today, kiss the son, embrace his loving leadership, take refuge in him, uh, for otherwise his wrath will be quickly kindled. Let me pray and we'll be done. Our God in heaven, thank you for Psalm 2, uh, for this glorious presentation of the gospel by King David. Thank you for the perspective that it gives us on human rebellion. Help us to uh, believe this perspective, to embrace it by faith, that you do laugh at all the rebellion that takes place on this planet. Uh, Help human rulers to see that they're rebelling not uh, really against international law, but against you and against your Messiah. We, we pray in particular for somebody like Vladimir Putin. Open his eyes that he would see this and repent before it's too late. Lord, we do pray in this window of opportunity between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Use us that all the nations might come to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. Use us that uh, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation would come to King Jesus and embrace him. Uh, And Lord, we do pray for any who are listening, who are watching, who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. Work in their hearts that they would take refuge in him today.
Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you have a great day.